This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Emily Benchy and I'm a Global Europe researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin. I'm delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Back to the Future, Ireland and the EU at 50 podcast series as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project, which is supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs. Today's discussion will look at how European agricultural policy changed in the 50 years since Ireland joined the then European Economic Community. I'm delighted to be joined by two people who are deeply familiar with both Irish and EU agricultural policy and have kindly agreed to share their insights, reflections and thoughts with us today. Tom Arnold, Chair of the European Commission's high-level expert group to assess the need for an international platform for food system science, former Chief Economist and former Assistant Secretary General in the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, and of course, a former Director General of the IIEA, and Tom Warren, Chair of the Board of Kerry Group, Chair of Onboard BIA's Dairy Subsidiary Board, and former Secretary General of the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. To begin the discussion, I would like to take a look back to 1973 and ask, what impact did Ireland's accession to the EEC have on agriculture, food and agribusiness in Ireland? Maybe I'll start because Tom, you start, yeah. I can remember that. Tom wouldn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if you look back to 1973, it was a, you know, a crucial and absolutely crucial year for Irish agriculture. And of course, it had been widely anticipated. The Irish farmers were among the most enthusiastic uh, group that voted in the referendum in 1972, a referendum vote in favour of joining the EEC by 83% uh, of the population or of the voting public. And so what they were hoping for and looking forward to was first and foremost, uh, the fact that they would have much greater market access to important markets for them, obviously the UK who are joining at the same time, but more, more importantly, the, the EU EEC uh, group of six member states at that stage. The, the other thing which they were looking forward to were joining in, in with the common agricultural policy, uh, with, which had higher prices and had, I suppose, protection for, from imports from, for the rest of the world. So Ireland, it was really one of the major uh, attract, attractive points for Ireland, uh, the, the benefits to agriculture. And so Irish farmers were, were certainly very happy to, to, to join the common market, as it was then called. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. That's fact, Tom, even if you remember it, but I know you've, you've not only remembered it, but you've studied it and written about it, but absolutely. I, if, you were, if I was to say one word, I'd say seismic. It, 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 I hate the cliche, it's a game changer, but it was, it absolutely, it, it was a game changer for the very reasons that Tom, Tom uh, uh, outlined. Because, you, you see, I mean, the, 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 the EEC at the time and the CAP uh, at the time was, was, as it always is and is now, in flux anyway. It's not, it's not a static uh, granite pillar. It's a process and it's a policy that's dynamic and grows. And it was growing at the time and it was responding to a certain, certain set of historic factors at that time. So the fact that we were jumping on this moving vehicle uh, 
it, it really suited us at the time from where we were coming. Um, and the kind of mechanisms that Tom talked about there, if you, if you were a small farmer, and most of them were small in Ireland, and somebody said to you, you know, you know, in plain language, as they did, you're going to get out from the threat of kind of a cheap food kind of policy in the UK that was had been and had set its uh, set its tent out. You're going to get income. You're going to get a kind of increase in your income. You're going to get that's going to be supported. You're going to be able to sell your produce uh, in beyond where you think you're going to sell it. So they were the things that were being held up as possibilities. What came as part and parcel of that then would be something like a perspective. Because you get a perspective, once you get, once you put those things in place, once you've, once you've got a kind of an income, um, a, 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 a guaranteed income of sorts, and once you've got a market, all of a sudden now you have a sector that has a future. And once you put that into the mix, then you've got the other players, including the food processors and, and, and various others saying, well, look, this looks kind of like something we could invest in. This, something, this has a future. This is no longer now you know, something that's totally in the doldrums. Um, so when you bring it all together, uh, it, it was seismic. I remember um, when I was, before now, I was probably in short pants. Um, uh, but I remember going over near my house uh, in Dublin, because I was dub, uh, not a farming dub like Tom now, a real dub from, from inside. I remember going over the railway bridge near our house and there was a, a big, huge sign or a, a table written up on the wall in graffiti, but really professionally done. And it gave the prices of food uh, now, the price of milk, price of meat, the price of this, what it would be, will be in two years' time, written in, in suburban Dublin. And I remember my mother passing by this, and she said, she kind of was a debate in the house, a very political house. And she was kind of saying, this is a curse. This is a ridiculous kind of a thing, you know, look at the price of this. That was the trade-off. But equally, my father was working at the time uh, in, a, in the motor trade in a particular hands-on little bit of a mini industry that was going to be wiped because of tariffs as well. So like the trade-off kind of came home to our kitchen table. They didn't know that there was a trade-off. But if you were a small farmer or particularly a, a well-up farmer and the farmer organisations, you could see the writing on the wall. This was this was a positive, no doubt. Thank you. Um, I I really uh, I really liked your description, Tom, of the Ireland joining the EEC as a game changer, and and adding that perspective um, for farmers. And looking then at at the current day and. At another game changer, although not not quite in the same in the same positive sense, um, in we're at the moment in, in the recent aftermath of COP twenty seven in Egypt. So I wondered if you could maybe discuss discuss some of the tension that is at play between agriculture and climate, and what this might mean for food and agribusiness, or in other words, what does the cap look like in a world of climate change? Well, I think the whole discussion about agriculture and the environment has drastically changed over this period, over this long period. I mean, when we joined in, in the 1970s, there was very little attention paid to the issue of climate change. There was very little attention paid to whether the impact that agriculture had on the environment. And over the decades, that has become much more important as a conversation. 
um, and uh, the cap itself changed to reflect that. So from the, effectively the late 80s into the 90s onwards, you were getting, the cap was effectively being what was called greened, that there were agri-environmental measures being built into the cap and farmers were getting paid for uh, adopting those agri-environmental agri measures. Now, the whole debate about this has taken another much greater turn in more recent years. And uh, there's, I suppose, increasing uh, societal interest and indeed concern about some of the um, impacts that agri the agri-sector is having on the environment. And therefore, that has to be reflected in policy. Uh, so we, we, we now have at the national level uh, a, a policy which is called Food Vision 2030, which I chaired a couple of years ago, or in fact last year, in fact we, we finished it. And the, the central objective of that is that over the next decade, Ireland should become a leader in sustainable food systems by 2030. Now that has big implications for how we do our farming, uh, how we minimize uh, the environmental impacts of our farming, but we also see that that if 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 that if and when that can be achieved, that provides us with a, a real source of competitive advantage in selling our good, our food and drink uh, over the world, because that's where what the global economy needs at this stage. Uh, I mean, Tom is a member of uh, the board of Borbia. And uh, I mean, this Borbia have played with with the development of Origin Green a really important role in uh, in in moving the whole the whole food sector in this direction. But it can only be properly realised if we live up to the promises that we've made. We can't proclaim that we're sustainable food systems unless we meet the really challenging targets that the government has set to reduce emissions, to improve water quality, and to uh, improve biodiversity. I, I, I would agree with everything Tom has said. I couldn't disagree with a single word, but he's absolutely right. Um, I go back to the point I made though, that the cap itself was always dynamic. It was always evolving. It was always changing. It's, it's going through another kind of quite critical iteration now. But it did when we joined. A couple of years after we joined, it was pivoting out of market uh, price support via via uh, intervention and via buying buying up excess. It was pivoting away from putting food onto the world market with subsidies. It was it, it was doing this. Each one of those was a was a kind of was proclaimed as being the end of the world at times because it, it, we, this was new stuff. You know, like what we we were used to guaranteed prices with intervention and so on. And then, as Tom says, it moved on and it, it kind of gradually shifted, but not without detailed kind of worry and concern to, you know, payments, income support to farmers with and then later with added environmental uh, conditions attached. So it's been moving along this direction all the time. And um, when it was when it succeeded on the price support. And, and, and increasing the, the volume of food, it moved away and it moved away with decent kind of consideration of all the concerns. We're at a stage now when we're at another big pivot point, um, uh, which, and personally, I wouldn't be overly um, pessimistic about it. Uh, there is a methodology that it needs more work. It, it's, it, it needs more, but the one that Tom outlined, the food systems approach is definitely, the way to go. Now, when we 
got access through the EU. That's way back now. When we got access to the world markets and, and to EU markets particularly, um, that came with things. That came with standards. That came with food safety. Food safety was, uh, it became the sine qua non. You couldn't sell without having these kinds of standards. And the, this, the equivalent nowadays, if you're going to sell, food safety is now taken as red. That's, yeah, you have to have that. It's now every single purchaser in the world at business level is buying on the basis of your sustainable credentials. And those credentials need to be not only just presented in a, in a kind of a photograph, but they need to be stood over, measured and controlled. It, it, it's doable. It's, it's a tall challenge. Uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but the system that Tom outlined and the group that he chaired, I was, I was part of it, um, that's, that is the only game in town now at this stage. But it is a winning game because it will allow us trade where, where, uh, where we need to trade. 90% of our food goes abroad. 90%. Uh, livestock will always be a key element of our production, no matter what happens, either milk, meat, or both, or a mixture of both. So if you're going to do it, we're going to have to do it in that way. And Emily, could I just add in one thing? I think uh, if we are going to attain that um, uh, recognition as being a leader in sustainable food systems, it's going to give rise to a whole new generation of exports. We won't be just exporting food and drink of the highest quality. We'll be exporting services, ideas, uh, technology, uh, to, 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 which reflect the journey we've been on and the journey many other countries would like to embark on. So that's, I think, a whole new set of opportunities uh, as we look to the future. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting way of looking at it, Tom, as, as uh, creating a whole a whole new market there for, for export or, or product for export. Um, and also, Tom Moore, in your, your reference to, to the CAP as being something that's constantly in flux, I, I think this leads nicely into the third question, which in a way asks if if the cap is perhaps in a circular kind of flux um, as, as we're uh, in the 60th anniversary year of the cap, which was initially designed to feed Europeans in the relatively immediate aftermath of World War II and to provide a, a steady income for, for farmers. We once again face war in Europe and the problems this presents for, for both agriculture and supply chains. So. Would you say that we've come full circle in terms of food security and, and the need for a robust cap? Tom, do you want to go first on that one? Yeah, um, I, I would say it's a different food security issue. Um, the, the, the food security issue, which kind of gave rise to the, the original cap, was the more traditional binary. The place was that Europe was in need. How do, you, how do you feed? You stimulate production and you put in innovation and you, you you do it that way the the food security we're talking about now um, is a different thing we need to we need to ensure um, secure supplies of nutrition the right type of nutritious uh, uh, protein for for people plant and animal based um, we need to to ensure like for example that supply chains which got a got a good shake if you like in the last couple of years in over COVID and so on, people were taking food a bit too much for granted. Um, so the, the food security, which is still a big issue, it's a different food security issue, but it still needs to be uh, 
it still needs to be taken very, very good care of. But I'd steer it more towards proper nutrition for the needs of the growing, for the growing population, not just in terms of total quantity, but having, having regard as well to the importance of the sophistication of supply chains. Well, that point about nutrition is absolutely right. Um, I think, though, uh, th there's a question that the EU now has to ask, particularly in the wake of the Ukrainian crisis, as to the role the EU wants to play in this more global debate about uh, food, food security. And I would always actually now call it food and nutrition security. Uh, what the Ukraine crisis has brought home uh, to, to everybody, I think, and most of us weren't fully aware of it, was the degree to which uh, many countries in the world are, are dependent on imports from Russia and Ukraine. Now, assuming that the Ukraine crisis settled, set, is resolved at some stage, it will have to be resolved at some stage, uh, I think it's going to give rise to uh, a lot of deliberation in many countries who found themselves really heavily dependent on imports from these two countries. And there's two questions then they have to answer, and they can only be answered over the medium term. One is how these countries can diversify their, their imports. And the second one is how these countries can increase the percentage of the food that they consume that they produce themselves. So they're both issues which I think are new on the agenda. Uh, there's the other uh, issue, of course, which uh, I would be very, very concerned about, is the degree to which uh, many of the poorer countries in the world have the, their vulnerability to high prices and lack of uh, being able to import and lack of being able to import fertilizer as well, the vulnerability that that has expo exposed. So the EU, I think, has a, has a real responsibility to redefine uh, what food and nutrition security means uh, in today's world, uh, do so in regard to its own its own internal interests, but also do so in regard to wider global interests in which the EU has a role to play. I, I agree, and it, Tom, it does, Emily, it does bring um, into play again the whole area of innovation and the, 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 the export of the innovation and, you know, what can be done there. Like, you know, one of the things that contributed to the EU's success, and I think it's a success in relation to its food production over the last 50 years, is the, 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 the innovation and what's called the extension, the, the rolling out of that to farmers. And there's a huge amount that the EU can do uh, based on the, the idea of precision farming and of farming tailored precisely to the conditions that you have in some of the countries that Tom refers to. Um, the R&D and the innovation in relation to uh, food and ag is, is there's a huge amount yet to be done, to be learned, but more importantly, to be shared. And I think part of this conversation about looking to the cap and how it's to evolve is really to, to be clear about the two great big global challenges to be faced by 2050. One is how to feed a in a nutritionally appropriate way a population which would be then close to 10 billion people. We're currently just at 8 billion people. And the second thing to, to consider is how can that be done while respecting and meeting the great and very challenging climate goals that are set? I mean, in, in COP this year in, in Egypt, 
we were talking about, you know, how can global temperatures be kept to within 1.5 uh, uh, degrees over pre-industrial levels. That's a massive challenge. And the whole agri-food sector, both in Ireland and in every other country, is going to have to face up to that. Yep, fully agree with that. Tom, we're agreeing on everything. Maybe, maybe I know, yeah, but that's it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's fantastic and, and the agreement <laughs> just, just serves to... <laughs> serves to show the um the robustness of, of your both of your your opinions i think i i was fascinated to hear you speak tom about the um the innovation i had been reading recently about a farm or a collective of farms in west cork that aim to be the first uh, net zero farms um dairy farms actually um nonetheless um in the world which i i think is just fascinating that it has the, the debate has spurred this this huge drive towards innovation and to finding creative solutions. Um, one, so, one thing, Emily, if I, if I just may, may on that is one of the things uh, which, which would be of concern to me anyway, would be uh, to allow a big complex debate about the two giant issues that Tom re referred to for, for they for the, those for the dialogue the narrative to degenerate into binary simple issues um, uh, there was a you know it's, it's, it's a well-known thing that if you want to have a proper discussion about about something that's straight up and simple broaden it because you, you know the type type of innovation that you refer to there that could be done on on some livestock farms will get us a good long way it might get us all the way but it gets a good long way to making a good dent in the in the um, you know in, in the the greenhouse gas emissions both nitrous oxide and and methane there's a lot that can be done that doesn't get into the wider debate to any great extent it's not just about taking down the number of cows that you've got in the country uh, it's, that's a bit too simplistic the the innovation that's there needs to be further developed really really heavily invested in and then rolled out because a lot you can do. I mean, to take a very simple example, Tom will know this like the back of his hand, the way in which we use fertilizer, which brings you back to supply chain because a lot of it was being imported. The way we use fertilizer, the, the stuff we use to actually fertilize can be changed to limit your climate, your climate adverse effects, to make yourself more efficient, and also then to, um, to, to limit your vulnerability to uh, trade supply chain. You know, so, so like there is there is a lot of win-win stuff. It won't necessarily solve it all, but there's a hell of a lot going around. Yes, yeah, definitely. And I think that one of that that's an excellent point about broadening things. And then it comes back to Tom Arnold's point about look taking this this food systems approach and looking at things from that that broad high level, um, which is is a really valuable way of, of approaching the issue. I think we've covered so much in, in what has just been a, a short space of time. So on that note, I think there's nothing left but for, for me to thank you both, um, Tom Arnold and Tom Warren, for, for your time and for, for your insights during this discussion. Um, and just to say to our audience that you can listen to other episodes in our Global Europe podcast series on our Spotify channel. And if you'd like to learn more about the work of the IIEA, please check out our website at IIEA.com. So thank you both again very much and goodbye. Great. Thanks, Emily. Well done, Emily. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. Well Bye-bye. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project.